Let me just introduce myself. Um, really excited about this series. And kind of let me give you a disclaimer before we even jump in. And for some of us, um, there are a, a full spectrum in the room that there are people who right now are in a place uh, of just singleness. You're not dating anyone. You're, you're not in a relationship. You're not married. Uh, maybe you've come out of something that was a disaster and you're not sure that you want to embark back on that journey again. And that there are some of us who are processing divorce. There's some of us who have been in marriage for a while and are processing not the happily ever after, but that there's just a lot of after that day. And what does that mean to do the ever after? And, and for some of us, we're just in the midst of a relationship that we think can't get any better. And here's kind of my, my caveat to us all is that what I think you will find in the midst of this series is, is something for all of us. Because the love... The relational dynamics that we'll process through this month is universal. The, the principles that we'll process will, will help you in a romantic relationship, but it will, it will also strengthen your friendships. Because the dynamics that play in all relationships and all relationship dynamics of love are the same. They're just fleshed out differently. And, and so just to kind of help you, because maybe you come today and you're like, you know what, I'm processing through a divorce or I'm processing through a breakup and I don't know if I want to be better together with them. Okay, I'm just going to be real with you. I, don't, I didn't like the together, and it can't get any better. And um, so if you're about to tell me I need to go back to that, I'm not. I don't want to. I just want to, you can relax. I'm not here to you, convince you, help you change your mind about going back to something that's broken. My desire is that you would move forward deeper, more rooted in the principles of love and relational dynamics. Because relationships matter, don't they? You can have everything in life going perfectly, but if you have relationship struggles, it doesn't matter how good the good things are. And yet if you have strong relationships, whether it's friendship or whether it's with your partner or whether it's, it's just in your family dynamic, that even in the midst of bad times, having strong relationships make the bad times not as bad. That from an early age, like I just said uh, with my four-year-old, that relationships matter. We're born desiring them. We're born desiring to have them, to, to be loved and to be known. And when hormones hit around the early teens, all of a sudden something gets awakened inside of us and we start to look for someone else who in our hearts, and our minds, we believe is going to satisfy even a deeper longing that was awakened. And the series, I think what you're going to find is it's going to help us process through how to manage relationships because the reality is, is that while relationships matter and while they're incredibly important, they're also very difficult, right? If you're married, what would have been incredibly helpful would have been not just that you both would have looked gorgeous that day and said, I do, but that an instruction manual would have been handed to you that said, do this, here's how he is, here's how she is, don't do this, um, be aware of this, right? I mean, there's, we try to do everything we can to mitigate, but at the end of the day, we live with people and it's hard. Relationships are difficult. I think a great picture of the challenge is January 3rd, 2015, Yasmin Elby in a Houston museum, lavish ceremony, 10 bridesmaids, walks down the aisle, and in a spiritual ceremony, she marries herself. And she throws a lavish party. Her friends, her families 
They're, they're there. Everyone's dancing and celebrating. Yasmin leaves to go on her honeymoon where she plans to go to Cambodia, Laos, and to end the whole entire extravagant honeymoon with a jazz festival in Dubai. And she said that day, I do, to herself. It was the first time in America that someone had married themselves. And now you may say, you don't know my spouse. Granted, right? Because at the same time that Yasmin is this ridiculous picture of just the state of relationships in America. Because she says, I can't find anyone. So I guess I'll, love, I'll commit to the one person I've always loved, me. Right? <laughs> that for some of us, we've been in relationships where we have been with someone more committed to themselves than they were to the ourselves. Right? Who was very much self-consumed. I was having a lunch a few weeks ago with, um, with one of you, and we were talking about relationships, and this very profound sentence was said that I was like, yes, it's like relationships are hard. I never knew how selfish I was until I was in a relationship. And I said, yeah, that's pretty much how it works. You think you're a good person. You think you got it figured out. You think you're generous and kind, and then you get into a relationship. And all of that unwinds. For me... It happened in college. Well, I was in grad school at that point, and I was dating a girl named Jenny, and things were progressing, and it seemed like, okay, this could really work. Like, she might be someone I could see myself being around for the rest of my life, and um, she was pretty, and I was bald, and that's pretty much what we had going for us, and <laughs> happened early. And, um, and we're sitting outside of a coffee shop, and it had been kind of a, a rough patch of our relationship, and I'll be honest most of the rough patch of our relationship was because of me. I was very much self-consumed, selfish, um, very much just wrapped up in the world of my bald head. And she looked at me, and I'll never forget it. She said, look, I like you. I think what we have could possibly work. I think what we have, I could see this becoming something serious. Like, I might even want to marry you one day. But I can't marry you the way you are. You've got to grow up. I want to marry a man, not a boy. And I was like, go. Because she was calling me out in my selfishness. There's all these things I'd been doing. She just, pow, pow, and just went through it. And it was completely from a, a good place. It was a place of love. Like She was like, I like you, but for us to work, you've you got to grow up. And that was one of the most defining moments of my life in our relationship. Because I had, to go, I had to take a couple steps back and realize that, you know what? I am self-consumed and self-centered. And my world does revolve around me. And that because of my world revolving around me, I was presenting, presenting to her, I was producing in her a conflict and a question mark about the we. She was like, look, because you're all about the me, I'm not sure there can ever be a we. Just being real with you. And what's interesting is the same thing that my now wife told me 10 plus years ago on a curb outside of a coffee shop is in many ways the same advice that Paul gave a young church in one of the most famous chapters on love in human history. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul lays out a chapter that whether it's in a religious context or in a in a non-religious context, it's a chapter you will hear frequently quoted in many weddings. 
It's the chapter of love. It's this beautiful pen chapter with Paul's reflection on love. But I think in the midst of hearing those statements, we can miss the broader context of what was happening. You see, Paul's writing this letter to a church in Corinth. This is a a church that Paul cared deeply about. He had visited them multiple times. We believe there were at least four letters exchanged between Paul and this church. I mean, there's a lot of conversation, and underneath it, a lot of conflict. They lived in this church, dwelled in a city that was a very affluent port city. It had been rebuilt. It had become a, a Roman powerhouse economically because of its position. Um, it had attracted, in, in some ways, some historians have said that Corinth embodied a, a commitment to self-fulfill, self-fulfillment and happiness no matter the cost. They were a people that chief end and goal in life was happiness no matter who paid the price. Self-fulfillment no matter what the cost. And that in the midst of these people that were very much about the me, and a people that thought they had understood love because Aphrodite's temple the goddess of love, had, had been constructed just right outside their city. And, and though it still laid in ruins, um, thousands, well over a thousand prostitutes would come down from that temple to, to, to encourage people to worship, right? I mean, this is a city that gets love, that gets relationship. It's cosmopolitan. And in the midst of their me-centeredness, Paul writes this letter, and specifically this chapter, to call them to an elevated place. He's like, look, I know that you live in a city of me, but if you're going to experience a better togetherness, you need to understand the dynamics of we. And the dynamics of we happens through love. In, in verse 11, in fact, and if you have um, the Encounter Church app, in the sermon notes, it's already loaded for you. Um, it's going to kind of, it gives you the outline and the passage. If um, you have a Bible, I'm in 1 Corinthians 13. And if you don't, we would love to get you one, or you can use the one on the Encounter Church app. But Paul in verse 11 gives this, I think, great picture that I want to use this morning in our next 20 minutes just to process through. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. So what I love about Paul's description is if you looked at chapter 12, if you looked at chapter 14, you'll find that they're in the midst of some conflict with the we because it's all about the me. And his advice is to interject this conversation about love. And he doesn't just interject a conversation about love. He redefines love for them. Paul, it's, it's believed that Paul literally invents words to, to capture the essence of love that he's trying to communicate because they think they get love. They, they grew up with the temple of Aphrodite. I mean, she's the goddess of love. Hello, this is a city of love. We get it. And Paul says, you know what? When I was a boy, I thought like one. And then I grew up. And in the midst of that picture, I think, is an image and a call to the church of Corinth. And, and even though this had nothing to do with marriage, those dynamics of the we apply to all relationships in life. And he says to them, grow up. You need to change the way you think about love. And you need to start working off a better definition of love. It's not a love rooted in what Aphrodite and her priest have taught you. It's a love born out of the demonstration of Jesus on a cross. 
And Paul uses that backdrop to redefine love for them. And he says, it's time for you to grow up in your understanding of love. It's the most excellent way. That's how he starts chapter 13. And so what I want to do is, in the midst of this image that Paul uses as a great metaphor for his call to them, that I want to pull out this idea of what does it look like to grow up and mature in love. And it has implications, like I said, in every relationship. But I think we can especially find it helpful for those romantic relationships in our life. And so to, to help me, help you, and to help me, I, I turned this into an acrostic. And in, in your app, you'll see that. It's, it's GROW. It spells out GROW, G-R-O-W. And it's just going to four hooks on what does it look like to move from a love that's been primarily me-centered to a love that is we-centered. And it starts with the G. That from four to seven is the verses that Paul uses to unpack love. And he says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Paul lays out for them, um, depending on how your translation works it out, about 14 different descriptors of what love is and isn't. And so in the midst of the conversation, Paul does, which is something very helpful if you're going to have a conversation, he defines it. He says, let's define the word that I'm going to talk about. The word I'm talking about is patient, is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. And it just works through, and it is and it isn't, and it is and it isn't. He's like, this is what love looks like. And the first step that he's calling them to is to shift their mindset because they lived in a place that was consumed with the the me-centeredness. And so Paul was saying, look, you've got to go from this infatuation mindset to this intentional mindset. That most of the time what happens in relationships, right, is this strong, powerful emotion that hits you. That the, the day you first saw him or the day you first saw her and your heart skipped and then you held hands and you got sweaty and you, oh my goodness, and I don't know what to do with this. And all these like chemicals rush over your brain. I mean, do you, do you remember that? It's like the, probably the first, if I can say this word, it's the first high you probably ever experienced. Your brain is hijacked. Chemicals are washing across it, and you feel good. All you can think about is her. If, if maybe you're a teenage boy, all of a sudden bathing becomes important, right? Deodorant becomes something that has relevance for your life because you see her, right? I mean, the, all of a sudden, they become the consuming focus of your life. It's all you can think about, texting emojis, right? I mean, it's just like everything to you. And while that's a great way to start a relationship, perhaps, that doesn't sustain a relationship, right? If you fall into love, that means you fall out of it too. And Paul's like, the love that I'm talking about has nothing to do with infatuation. has nothing to do with this intense emotional experience. It has everything to do with a deliberate choice. I mean, look at the words he uses. Love is patient. It's kind. You don't just drift to patience. Patience doesn't just kind of happen, right? Patience is you going, okay, I'm going to control it. Okay, 
I'm going to keep controlling it. If, if you have a teenager, or if you ever were a teenager, you probably saw patients sometimes displayed in your parents, right? It's just, and that is, love is kind. It does not envy. And the word kind is kind of a fun word. Paul is trying to like capture what does this look like to be a deliberate choice that's not, that's not so much about the emotion, but it's about the action because he keeps using action words. He keeps saying love is a verb. It's what you do. So he takes the word goodness and he takes the word kindness and he creates this word that is translated kind, but it's kind of a good kindness. I mean, Paul's trying to capture the essence of the action of love and it's all deliberate choices. It's, I'm not going to scream and walk out of the room right now. I'm going to listen. I'm not going to keep a record of wrongs. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to trust them. I'm going to give them a benefit of the doubt, a deliberate choice to give them the benefit of the doubt. Instead of, why did you do that again? Instead, it's, hey, I noticed this happened. Help me understand. And you realize, oh, okay, they were having a, a crazy day, and they just forgot. They, they forgot to text me and tell me they were coming home. Not, they don't care, they're so selfish, they could have just let me know. And it's these subtle things. He's like, it's a deliberate choice. It's action, not emotion. Because here's the thing. We don't drift into great relationships. Right? Drifting doesn't get you to good places in relationships. Cohabitating, just kind of coexisting in the same space, doesn't cause a relationship to grow. Deliberate, decisive actions. That's what causes relationships to grow. Setting aside yourself to be kind and patient. And he, but he keeps going. It's not just this infatuation to intention. That intentionality is important, but there is, I think when you realize it's not about the emotion, then for many of us, love is an emotion. And the thought should naturally flow out of that. Well, then if love isn't an emotion, then what's it rooted in? And that Paul is saying, look, when, when love is growing, when it's maturing, that it's, it's moving from being about the emotion. It goes, it goes from being rooted in feelings to rooted in a commitment. And that's the R. It's rooted in commitment, not feelings. And I know on, on, like, straight up, that doesn't sound very sexy. Right? I want them to feel for me the way we always felt. Like, no, you don't. You want them to work. You want them to have a job. You don't want them sitting around thinking about you all day because if they did that, they would get fired. Right? Oh, honey, I lost another job today. Why? Because all I could do was think about you. No, you'd be like, quit thinking about me. Get a paycheck. Right? That we want something deeper than emotions. We want something deeper than chemicals. We, ultimately, we want a commitment. And I think it's interesting, even in the midst of our culture that's especially with the younger generation, it's so commitment-phobic. Have you ever noticed that even in the midst of love songs, there is something about love that naturally, with the, with the people, even in the early stages, that, like my daughter yesterday, when she said, I want to stay in your arms, and she uses this word, I haven't taught her this word, forever. Right? When people write love songs, they're like, 
I will love you until the sun doesn't shine. I mean, like, no one ever says, baby, I'm yours until I have a really bad day and you gain a little weight. Like, no one does that. We naturally, when we feel those intense, passionate feelings of love, we want to commit ourselves. We say things like, I will always or I will never. Because something about love wants to bind itself, wants to commit itself. And that's a good thing. That love is rooted in commitment, not feelings. And here's where I, I get the, the, like, the, the, the sexiness is not there. Because you can say, well, but that sounds so restraining, trapped. Like my, my love's not feelings. It's, it should be a commitment even more than a, it should be an emotion. I just feel what, I get tied down. What if I don't feel those things anymore and I'm tied down? Well, let me help you. The kite, it's like the kite looking at the string and saying, because you're tied to me, I can't fly. Right? But the kite flies because it is grounded to something. Commitment does not bring restraint in a relationship. It brings freedom. Because commitment allows you to have conversations that emotions would never allow you to have that are healthy. Commitment takes you through dark places where emotions do not. No amount of good emotions in a moment will carry you through hard times. If emotions are your anchor, then you can't weather a storm. But when you have commitment and you're grounded to one another, then you're like the kite. The kite can fly because it's tied to the stream. And Paul's like, look, these are, it, it always trusts, it always hopes, uh, always. It's a committed thing. But it's not just about the commitment. I think the commitment leads you to something logically that's the next step. A commitment always involves someone or something. And that the O is that love, if it's going to mature, is, has to become other-centered, not self-centered. That has to be about them, not about you. That the focus, if you're going to be effective in one anothering one another, then your focus and your commitment has to be to the other of your one another. It's, that's, your commitment is to them and their good, their needs. That love in so many ways is about leveraging all that you are for their good. And, and, I, and I get even in the midst of that, that it may well up inside of you, what about my needs? What, if, if all I'm doing is focusing in on them, what about me? And I think that's legitimate. But here's the brilliance of what Paul is laying out for them. He's saying love from you to them is this massive one-way street where you take your cues for what's best for them. But when you've got this one-way street lined up and next to it is another one-way street from them to you committed to your good, then what you have is a super highway of love. Because this person's committed to their good no matter what and this person's committed to your good no matter what. 
How incredible is that? Now, I get that most of our struggles come from being in relationships where we have given everything and they've given nothing. Or, or they're kind of locked into that circle of the me. But that doesn't mean it doesn't work. But the relational dynamics of maturing love is that there are two one-way streets and that both are committed to the other's good. That what happens is we tend to just work off the wrong definition of love. Or, I think even more practically, is that we tend to love people the way we want to be loved. Like if you, you know, let me get personal. For, so for some of us, we may love physical touch. Right? Whether it's hugs, right? Whether it's holding hands, kissing, whatever. It's like physical touch. I feel loved when my partner, fill in the blank. Right? And you got a partner who's like, uh, physical touch is just not my thing. I'm just not a physical touchy person. I love getting gifts. I love getting sweet cards. I love, I love hearing, I thought about you today. And this person's like, I don't care about gifts. I don't care about sweet cards. It doesn't mean anything to me. What happens in most relationships is this person's giving love the way they want to get it, and this person's giving love the way they want to get it, and neither one of them is enjoying the love relationship. Because they're like, uh, I just, I just, we don't connect. I don't, why are we stuck? And so one of the things in the app, and it's actually live now on our Facebook page, um, is a, a really simple test. You don't even have to read the book, but I think it's just one of those little profound, helpful tools called the five love languages. And it applies beyond just your relationship with your significant other. It can apply to your kids. It can apply to even relationships with friends. And what it is, is it's a self-evaluation tool. It takes maybe five minutes, um, but we all love ourselves. So it's fun because it's five minutes focused on you, right? And um, so you get to answer in five minutes all the things that you love. I love when my partner holds my hand in public more than I love when my partner sends me a text message. Or I love quality time, but I don't love gifts. And it's this self-evaluation tool. That, and at the end of the test, it tells you, kind of ranks in order, your top, and, and it will give you one through five. Usually what matters is the first two, specifically the first one. And it says, this is how you typically receive love. For some of you, it may be gifts. My mom, that's her love language. I don't care about gifts at all. That's my mom's. And the way I know that's my mom's, without even having her take this test, is that she gives gifts. That's the thing she wants to do. That's, that's her natural expression. And if you're around someone who gives gifts, and you've never asked for it, you've never said, hey, I really like getting gifts, it's probably because they like gifts. If you're around someone, if, if you're, whether it's your kid or whether it's a real, you know, just a friend, but you notice they're just touchy. They like to put their arm around you. They like to sit close. For some of us, we have bubbles, right? But whether it's a kid or whether it's a friend or whether it's even your significant other, they just always seem to be inside of your bubble. And you're like, what is up with this? I got a bubble. It's probably because physical touch is their love language. And, and it, that simple tool has the power to revolutionize your relationships. Now, here's the deal. You're taking it for you, but you need to have the people in your life take it for them too. Because if it's going to be other-centered, then you're going to leverage who you are to love them in the way that they best receive it. 
So it means if they're gift givers, if they're gift receivers, if that's their deal, then it doesn't matter if you're physical touch. Then you need to be intentional and work out of what they receive as love, and you need to give gifts. It doesn't have to be extravagant gifts. Gift giving is not like, oh, I bought you a car today. It's, it's more of the thought. All of them are just different ways of expressing thoughtfulness and, and so much of what Paul lays out in verses 4 through 7. That when you start to become other-centered, not self-centered, then even your schedule starts to matter with that significant person in your life. You start to factor them in when you make choices. I, I watched a lot of relationships, even in, um, with friends of mine, who were guys who um, loved gaming. They, I mean, like devoted hours to gaming every single day. And then they get into relationships, and then it gets serious. And two years later, their relationship is falling apart because they went into that marriage doing the same thing they'd always been doing. Right? The other's like, oh, they're going to stop doing that when we get married. They won't spend five hours a day on the video games. No, they spend seven because you're probably doing other things that they used to do. Right? And other-centered means, you know what? It's not about me. It's about them. And I can't do that because I can't, I'm no longer making decisions that are just about me. I have to make decisions about we. And then the final thing that I think is just really helpful, and it's implicit in everything. When Paul says love is patient, love is kind, that it keeps no record of wrongs, he's giving you a heads up that you're going to need to be patient. You're going to have wrongs done to you. And that you need to be kind. I think for, for many of us, especially probably in, a, in the culture of Corinth and this me-centered world that even we, we deal with, um, we're sold a lie growing up that when I finally meet that person, the right one, or my soul mate, right? That they're going to complete me. It's going to be Jerry Maguire, I'm all done, finished, check, happily ever after. It's all like everything's perfect in my life. And that many of us go into relationships expecting perfection. And Paul is saying, no, you need to expect in progress. Because none of us are perfect. And relationships reveal our imperfections even more. And that there's a reason he says you have to be patient. is because they're going to drive you insane sometimes. Right? I'm sure my wife loves me. There are probably times she does not like me. I'm just going to be real with you. I'm sure I drive her insane sometimes. But she demonstrates patience and kindness. Because I'm in progress. Not perfect. And she's in progress. She's not perfect. If you're looking for the perfect person, the one who is going to complete you, the one who is your soulmate who you will live happily ever after with, I am sorry they're not real. You will not find them. And if you think you find them, after about five years with them, you will wake up one day and you will think something happened and that you made the wrong decision because this person isn't them. And you will walk away from that relationship in search of the other right person that you missed. 
and you will do it again five years from then. That we are all in process and in progress. And perfection and the expectation of perfection in your relationship will destroy it. And it's not fair to them and it's not fair to you. And now hear me, I'm not saying don't have standards. Because have standards. Have high standards. But you set yourself up for disappointment if you think it's going to be a fairy tale. And Paul, Paul's like, look, it's going to protect, it's going to trust, it's going to hope. It's not going to dishonor because there are going to be moments you want to dishonor them because they were a fool. And you want everyone in the world to know how much of an idiot your spouse was. Because you can't believe it. He says, no, love honors them. Because it realizes he, she, work in progress. And we're in this thing together. For me, I think for, in college, one of the things that really helped me in preparation for relationships and living with people, because now I live with two females and still working through that one some days, um, right, with a, a wife and a daughter, um, was I remember a, a, kind of a college minister went to a, kind of a college group and uh, a guy looked at me and said, do you want a picture of that, that future version of you with that future person and how easy it's going to be? Because you think everything right now is just hard, but once you get with them, it's going to be all right. He said, how's your relationship with your college roommate right now? He said, how's that working for you? Because if you want a picture of what it's going to look like to live with another person, then deal with the one that you're living with right now. If you've got conflict over messiness, if one of you is cleaner than the other, and that leads to issues, then you're probably getting a glimpse of what the future you is going to have to deal with. And that if you're maybe in a stage right now and you're single and you've got some roommates and you're like, oh, I wonder if this thing's going to play out or, you know, you're looking to the future. I would encourage you, start right where you are with practicing love. Put it into motion because I promise you, like guarantee it, the worst day with your roommate will not compare to the worst day with your future spouse. There will be hard times. And if you can learn to work through conflict with them, then you can see progress. Um, when I was in college, I was mentored um, by a guy who uh, had a mentor who was famous in our community for um, what he was going. He was a president of a large organization. And in the midst of the height of his success, his wife was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. And here they are in their 50s. He, he leaves leading this prestigious organization. Um, he retires early to take care of his um, wife. And, um, and it was a really aggressive early onset. And so it was kind of moving fast. And um, the guy who was my mentor, Adrian, was hanging out with Rob. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, they were talking. And Adrian hears screaming. And Rob jumps up and runs into the bedroom because at that point in um, her, her disease progression, she um, was wearing diapers, she was sleeping a lot, and she would wake up not knowing where she was. And it was a terrifying experience, as you can imagine. And so she had just woken up, and she was terrified. 
And so he runs into um, the bedroom and he hears him kind of whispering softly and she, she's kind of quietening down. And then Rob runs out of the room straight by Adrian and out the door. And a few minutes later, he comes back in. And um, Adrian's like, everything okay? He said, no, I just, I had to go and flip the, uh, I had to go flip the, the flag on my mailbox. It's like, oh, it's a strange time to send mail. Like, the, what in the world? He said, no, um, she's, she's been in this place for a while. Most days she doesn't recognize me. He said, and because of just how fragile she is, I can't really leave her. But every once in a while, she looks at me and I see it. She remembers me. And I, but I spend a lot of time in the house alone, and so I want my neighbors to know today's been a good day. So when she recognizes me, I run to the mailbox and I flip the flag. So as they're coming home, they know today she remembered me. And he's just weeping. And Adrian's just sitting there dumbfounded. And he's just like, like, Rob, how do you do this? He said, I love her. I, I didn't say, I love you until the day I have to change your diaper. I said, I love you. Period. I'm committed to you. Period. And I think for many of us, we never see a picture of love like that. And for most of us, we live with the idea that that's just as much as a fairy tale as the happily ever after. And that that's so beyond the scope of what we could ever experience. But what he was experiencing, I think, we're so drawn to because at the end of the day, we get that there should be a love like that. And that there, if there was a love like that, that's probably how God loves. A love that, that's fully known. That, that will change your diaper and love you and be committed to you in the same moment. That that deep, profound commitment that isn't rooted in infatuation, but it's rooted in intentionality, that isn't fickle with feelings, but is consistent in commitment. A love that is focused on the other, not on oneself. And that realize that we're all a work in progress, progress, that there are good and there are bad days, but my call is to love. And to be patient and to be kind. And to demonstrate that love faithfully. And that's the love that God loves with. That's how he loves. And for some of you, you may be here and you're like, I'm not even sure if I believe in God, but I know that that love sounds really attractive. And we've created a space for you, a space where you can kind of begin a journey, where you can belong to a group of people, even if you don't believe what they believe. To, to have a safe space to ask hard questions, to work through the Bible and to, to bring it. And there's, there's no holds bar. It's let's just work together. And I lead that group with another couple. And I'd love, in, in a couple weeks we, we start off, I'd love for you to, to join that and process through this journey of God's love for me. Is it real? How can I know it? And for some of you, maybe you don't even have a friend 
Because what I just described with Rob, I have friends in my life who, who know me. They know all of my brokenness. But they're committed to me. And they love me. And I want to encourage you, if you don't have relationships that are, who are committed to you being better together, then that's what we've created life groups for. That they're all in progress, right? Anybody who's in a life group at Encounter Church knows that we're all a work in progress. But it's a place where we can be better together. It's a place where we can bring the me, but in, in light of the we, we can grow. And we can process. And we can take the, the principles and the truths and work them out deeper. Because we believe that over the course of this month, that if we're willing to grow up and mature in our love and to experience better relational dynamics and communication and interacting with one another and forgiveness and in being faithful that we can make February a month you'll love. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your love that is the source of the love that Paul pulled to define, to describe, and to point people to you. And so may you help us to love you, to honor you in the midst of learning how to love you, to learn how to love others with the love that you have for us. And may this be a month that we grow. And may this be a month that we love. In Jesus' name.